Hi, everybody. Chris Hartram here, the Talking Book Podcast. Today, with something a little bit different, something kind of cool, cool like jazz, jazz music. Uh, I went on a show called Jazz on a Summer's Day, which is a radio show in Western North Carolina. Uh, the station WPVM 103.7, check it out. Studios here in Asheville. It's uh, run by our good friend Sebastian Matthews, who's been on this podcast. Um, we recorded his book, Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision, uh, a couple years ago. And Sebastian's great, great writer, good friend, funny, nice guy. So I went on the show, talked about writing, talked about the talking book, and, uh, you know, just had a chat, played some songs, some jazz music that, uh, that uh, I liked. And, uh, you know, even if you don't like jazz music, no big deal. No one's trying to be too cool here. Just, uh, you know, cool radio show. But anyway, here's the show. Edited out the songs because we can't have the songs. So you'll hear little parts of the songs, a little beginning and end. But uh, yeah, can't play the whole thing. But yeah, give it a shot. If you like this, that's great. If not, check out thetalkingbook.org. Uh, we'll make your audiobook And also listen to this radio show, Jazz on a Summer's Day with Sebastian Matthews. Okay, enjoy. Wallace Roney, The Evolution of the Blues, and a little bit of unintentional overdubbing there. You're listening to Jazz in a Summer's Day, WPVMLP 103.7, Asheville. And I want to introduce today my guest and good friend, Chris Hartram. How you doing, Chris? Hey, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Pretty good. How you doing? It's good. It's good to be in front of the mic with you again. We'll talk more about that. Yeah, that's right. What did you bring? I introduced you a little bit up at the top of the show. Um... I want to ask you to bring some music and some things to talk about, and I know you brought some music. What did you bring? Yeah, so uh, first thing I brought was um, some Chet Baker off the album Chet Baker Sings. Uh, the first track, but not for me. Um, just brought this because when you said to bring a couple of songs, I was just trying to think, okay, which what jazz songs do I want to hear right now? What is very... Uh, very Chris Hartram uh, feeling in my own brain, and what would sound nice today? It's kind of a nice day. It's kind of light. I feel like there's a lot of kind of lightness and fun, uh, even in the bittersweet stuff from Chet Baker. So yeah, awesome. I love Chet Baker. Classic sound. Let's start with, but not for me. All right. All right. That's off Chet Baker Sings. Um, we're just talking now. What about Chet Baker gets to you? I mean, he's got such an allure. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Chet Baker is super popular. Um, everybody loves Chet Baker. And for me, I'm one of those guys that listens to a lot of jazz, but I don't really know anything about jazz, you know. Um, so uh, so I think I think I first started listening to jazz into college took some summer course to finish out some credits and it was like history of jazz in america class and learned about you know um the big ones like coltrane and um you know miles davis and people like that and uh then you know sometime afterwards i, I saw this weird documentary about this uh kind of beautiful aging sad uh drug addicted 
trumpet player. Let's get lost. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's a strange movie. It's so weird, and, and yeah. I didn't even know it was a real person. I thought it was fiction. You know, could be. Yeah, the way it's shot yeah. and the way it moves, yeah. it looks like a you know a fiction movie. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, I first heard his songs. I think separately, thought it was a girl singing. Yeah. And then uh, played a, a song, "Dancing on the Ceiling," which was so fun. And yeah, kind of ever since, whenever I'm feeling um, need a pick me up, I feel like Chet Baker is is the way to go. Yeah, you know, it's funny, that that soundtrack for that film is great. My wife won't let me listen to it because she's like, he has no teeth. I hate that sound. But I actually kind of like, it's he's ruined, you know, and right. his sound is ruined on the trumpet too. But he could still, it's part of like Billie Holiday, like certain musicians, his style, his kind of soul comes out in a way that doesn't really matter what the instrument, what right. shape it's in. Yeah. Um, though, you know, this stuff is so pure that we're listening to now, the early stuff. Right. Great. Um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, because when I first heard him or saw him or learned about him, it was at the end of his his time. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you said, he was already a broken man. And so when I went back and saw pictures of him young and, and you know, kind of this super handsome, you know, beautiful guy, it's, it's nuts. Kind of his life was so fascinating. Yeah. Him and Art Pepper, you know, they were these two guys that were really in, in love with, in some ways, which a lot of the white musicians were, with the allure of the jazz scene. And so they got into the drugs and they really got messed up by it, which a lot of musicians did. And right. um, some of them get through it and some don't. And he kind of got through it, but then again, he seemed, in that movie, he seems a bit of like a, a ghost. Yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, he's been beaten up by some drug deal gone wrong and he ends up falling out of a window, whether he fell out or gets, falls, you know, throws himself off i don't know but it's a sad story yeah it's, it's a super sad story did you did you see the um the uh, ethan hawk movie where he plays chet baker of course he does no yeah, no. no. yeah. yeah it was pretty good it, not as good as that that documentary but uh but it, yeah it's not bad it does it justice i think cool well this is a quote that i wanted to read i i read from this book last week it's a one of my favorite books on jazz called but beautiful by jeff dyer and he kind of speaks kind of in the voice of or kind of over the shoulder for a lot of musicians, you know, Monk and Mingus, who we'll listen to later, uh, President uh, Lester Young. And he um, he's kind of musing on uh, Baker's death. And, and I'm thinking, it reminds me of Frida Kahlo. There's a great quote by another artist in Mexico who says she was dying her whole life. And the idea that I think Chet Baker was probably dying the second half of his life, right. in a way. Uh, that old story about how when you die, the whole the whole of your life flashes before your eyes. His life had been drifting before his eyes for as long as he could remember, for 20 years at least. Maybe that was how long he'd been dying. A little snippet. That's great. All right. Um, let's talk more about living. Sure, and, let's live. And groundedness and family and community and friends. Yeah. And literature. All of these things I think of when I think of talking book. Oh, could you tell me about it? Because this is how we met. Well, we met in some ways, a couple different ways. But talking book was at the core of it. I thought so. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so yeah, uh, the talking book is a five hundred one c three nonprofit um, audiobook recording studio, and uh, we record books with authors and publishers, predominantly um, indie publishers. Though you know, as things have progressed, you know, we're branching out a little bit, but. Yeah, it's right here in Asheville. Um, I run it with uh, my uh, my right hand man, Dave Burr, who's the studio director. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's uh, 
it's something we've been doing now for about five years. And kind of the way it started was uh, we were both working for an audiobook production company. And all the books that, uh, that I like to read, um, you know, they weren't really made in audio very often. There was a lot, you know, indie literature was kind of a big thing, I felt like, uh, at least for... For people like me trying to write, um, and audiobooks were trending, but you know they still weren't recording those books. So we thought it'd be kind of cool if we started adapting these stranger books from indie houses um, and you know these independent presses, even like iconic places like New Directions, you know. And so we we just started recording a couple here and there, and people seemed to really like it. And one thing led to another, and then you know we ended up making a five hundred one c three and. Uh, yeah, I guess we've been doing it for a while. Done like over a hundred books. That's amazing. Yeah, I want to ask more about that and what your the, the projects you've been working with, working on, and recently and, and at the start. But when we met, you were working at a at the awesome studio, and then I saw it when I kind of connected with you again. It was uh, in an apartment, and now it's maybe in your house and yeah so and so it's you're in Asheville but you're a bit of hopping around can you talk a little bit about that origin of kind of place of kind of how you've settled into this place this town yeah I mean I moved here with my um my partner Danny Harris uh, because we were gonna have a kid um our son Max now who's five we got another one as well now is two Woody but uh you know we first moved here from uh you know I came from Tokyo by way of NYC and she lived in NYC and we moved here with no plan last second to have our son because it was near family and friends and we didn't know what we were doing. And I, I was in this random acting class, met a guy who recorded audiobooks, and I was like, oh, I, I write and, you know, I do stuff like that. I can help you with that. And, you know, we were doing work with him and that was called Spoken Word Inc. Uh, ben Matcher, great guy who helped us set up Talking Book in the beginning. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, we didn't even have a studio at first. We we just first we recorded you know Vivi Francis which was when I met you yeah, what for, a great event yeah. and time that was it was amazing Forest Primeval yeah. uh, her book which is incredible and Sebastian this guy came into the uh, studio and immediately started you know kind of giving giving tips and getting involved in the creative process I was like who's, who's sorry, this man. guy sorry who's this guy no it was amazing it was great stuff and so I knew from that moment on we'd be buddies and then we ended up doing your book Head oh, on yeah. Collision Beginner's Guide yeah, yeah Beginner's Guide to Head on Collision and uh, yeah, at that time, so we did Echo Mountain, and then we built a little studio in an apartment out of a closet, which you recorded in. Which was so fun. Yeah. Because you guys had done it really well, and that you really created, it was this kind of mini space, but it was really, it really was a place to record, Yeah, I felt like. I felt like. Uh, yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And we did that for a while, and then uh, we had like a proper audio booth after that, and then we, uh, you know, when it became a nonprofit, everything shifted, everything went nuts, and uh and then now we built the uh, the studio we have now. Dave worked really hard on it. Dave Burr. It's at uh, 23 Congress Street, so it's near River Arts District. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, actually, just last Wednesday, tomorrow night, we're continuing a project by Joseph Pathani, the former oh. poet laureate of NC. You know him? Amazing writer at all levels. I've yeah. heard amazing teacher, and he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. amazing. He was like yeah. my very first writing mentor. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so I've wanted to record his book, East Liberty, for a long time. Uh, but he'll be here for the next few Wednesdays. Um, and yeah, I was wondering if you knew him, if you guys had crossed paths, I'm sure. We have. He knew my dad. And, okay. and I've, we don't know each other very well, but I have lots of respect for him. And he's been very nice to me, as I know he is with lots of writers. He, yeah, he yeah. is incredible. He's definitely like this kind of, um, I think, a mentor for a lot of people, he, you yeah, know, in a way. So. But yeah, so we have people like him. You know, we do books. 
with, um, you know, as I said before, New Directions, Tyrant Books out of New York and Rome. We just recorded something with uh, for Penguin Random House UK. That's uh, awesome. And yeah, at this little studio here in Nashville. So yeah, you know, we're we're a small little uh, small little organization still, and there's a lot of hustle, but it's uh, it's fun. Great. I just want to jump in and say that uh, this is Jasmine Summer's Day, and I'm Sebastian Matthews, your host. You're listening to WPVM LP 103 Asheville, the voice of the mountains. We have Chris Hartram with us today. We're talking about the talking book. We're listening to music. And you know what I wanted to do is pick right back up and, and, and ask you how you feel it's been, what it's been like, connecting to what seems to me another, one more resurgence, you know, wave after wave of literary life in this town. I've been here 20 years, and there was a big wave of it before I came, and of spoken word, and that was going on, and then there was a resurgence with the Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center, and it's been going on, and I feel like there's a whole new wave of it right now. I feel like you guys are part of it. I know you've connected to Nicole Brown, some of these readings. Can you talk a little bit about um, what it's like to be here in Asheville these last four or five years, and what the energy feels like to you, what the vibe is? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, as I said, I came from bigger cities, and uh, you know, I felt I felt kind of lost in terms of my own connection uh, to a literary community or a place, just because you know, someone who's you know relatively young, trying to write, being in big cities, not sure, not sure quite how to interact with people or that community or even how to find it. But I think when I moved to Asheville and you know, meeting people like you and Nicole Brown and Jessica Jacobs, and then, you know, having connections to people like Joseph Bethany and starting to go to these readings and bringing authors here from elsewhere, like Scott McClanahan and, um, you know, doing, getting involved with some of the local writers and, um, you know, like, for example, like, yeah, like Luke Hankins, Orison Books. Exactly. Um, there's such a rich community here. and, And even though it's kind of small, there's so much, I mean, we would not be here talking book would not exist if it weren't for all the people that are, you know, um, I guess so willing to lend a hand, you know, and so willing to take a chance. So I think what Asheville really has, has going for it, at least in terms of my experience for the last five years is, um, people willing to give like the little guy a shot, get, get, get you involved and like, let you say something, let you do something, you know, add your part. Yeah. You know, I think you and I talked about that before, just trying our best to add whatever we can to what's going on here. I remember when I first came here, people like Thomas Raincrow, Glennis Redmond, they were, they were already really deep, Keith Flynn, deep into the scene. And they were so generous about, you know, putting their arm around and kind of hugging you into the scene. So I know the feeling. Um, Yeah. That's what I felt like with people like you and Nicole Brown and others is, is that kind of like, all right, all right. Get just you got this. Just go. You got this. That feeling of you got this. You know, yeah. confidence boosting. And yeah. I think that's the most important thing is just positive reinforcement, right? Oh, I think so too. Yeah, yeah and the mentorship that Bethanti um, embodies so well. I think you can get that at the, in the university setting, which he comes out of up at Appalachian State. But he's more than that, and I think this town is has that with Warren Wilson and, and UNCA and all the different places it has. But I think it's it's a community based place as well or you can meet each other outside of the classroom or the academy you can meet in bars and cafes or house parties and uh that that homespun feel really is i think one of its one of this place's charms yeah i think so too and it's funny you brought up bethanti about that because even though he's 
you know, really established in the university scene there at App State. I mean, I feel like what he first taught me and what I've gathered from uh, other mentors in my life, including you, um, writers I've worked with with Talking Book, is that kind of like writer's writer mentality, bars and cafes, house parties, anybody can do this. This is not exclusive, you know, elitism. You know, if it's there, it's there. Mm -hmm. That kind of... um, that kind of vibe, I think, is what makes people go for it and get involved, you know? Right. That's great to hear. Yeah. We're going to move to some more music in a second, but maybe you want to read. I know you brought a small piece. Speaking of, you know, putting your voice out there, I know you got a short flash fiction piece you might want to read. Does that feel good? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I got something. Um, yeah, I mean, the reason I started doing Talking Book back in the day was, uh, was you know, I was trying to write. And, you know, I get I get stuff published every once in a while here and there. And I think, uh, I think whether it's this radio show or the talking book or, or your own writing, whatever you're doing, it's all connected. Right. So, um, but yeah, this one was, uh, this was published, uh, not long ago on the nervous breakdown, uh, cheers to Joseph Grantham, the editor. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's not too long. So, uh, this is called mysterious morning. It was the early morning in Kabuki Cho. The sun was only just up, and everything was weird and tinted blue. The breeze pushed a piss smell from the gutters. There were cigarette butts and puddles along the curb. I was alone in front of a family mart. I didn't know why I was alone. The morning light continued to open the corners. A group of prostitutes talked and smoked near some drink machines. They wore long, padded puffer coats, mom jeans, and white running shoes. They always dressed like that, like Midwestern moms from the early 90s. I never figured out why, but it was consistent. We thought they were Chinese, but who's to say? Two of the girls looked at me and laughed. I tried to smile, but my smile was a failure. What's so funny, I thought. I touched my chest and felt nothing but skin and hair, so I wasn't wearing a shirt. I turned to the store window and saw my reflection. I was wearing a black motorcycle jacket, but I didn't own a black motorcycle jacket. That and no t-shirt, just the jacket over my hairy chest plus a black eye. I touched the swollen tissue. It was purple, but it didn't hurt. So black eye, no shirt, unexplained black motorcycle jacket. I looked at my phone, 6.45 a.m. I was holding a tall can of Coca-Cola. I chugged the Coca-Cola and patted the mystery jacket for a cigarette. No cigarettes. I approached one of the Chinese prostitutes. She walked the other way. Good for her. Her long puffer coat rocked like a bell. A family of white tourists turned the corner. Mother, father, and two teenagers. One girl, one boy. I panicked and looked at the sky as if I'd noticed something new in the sky. They spotted me anyway. I caught the dad's eye and nodded. He nodded. They all looked at the ground and turned the next corner and vanished. Oh man, I thought. A new low, spotted by white tourists in the daylight hours. Hard to explain. I looked up and saw a sign for an old soap lamp massage. A fading illustration of a woman in a bikini. She blinked. No, she winked at me. Beneath her was the phrase, rainbow eyelash, rainbow eyelash, rainbow eyelash, blinking in different colors. Had I seen this before? Was it deja vu? I closed one eye and looked again. It was still there, still blinking, winking. Rainbow eyelash, just the same. Rainbow eyelash, it was beautiful. Rainbow eyelash, never let me go. Yeah, that's it. Awesome, I like that very much. The kind of study and disconnection, you know, in exterior and interior, it seems. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that's part of something something longer 
that uh, I've been working on for a little while, and I've had a few excerpts of it published around at different publications, and uh, it's kind of kind of semi semi true based on the old days in Tokyo, and it, it kind of reminds me that spe- that specific little scene reminds me about the documentary we were just watching because this person is kind of ghost-like in the morning, kind of just doesn't know what's going on or what happened. It's, it reminds me a little bit of some of Kerouac, uh, Fonte. I don't know if you've read his work out in L.A., Bukowski. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Stuff I love. Um, yeah. And, and it's just, there's a sense of kind of it is, it, it's an auto, straight, you know, autobiography is a bit of uh, a fiction that kind of is based off it. Is it a, right? you know, it doesn't really really matter, but you get a, you get the feel of the, of the, of the moment, the, the details, the sign, the eyelash, the eyelash, some of this, you know, that kind of grittiness of the moment. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think that's what I'm going for. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a gun. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's listen to some music. You, I sure. asked you to bring a couple tunes, and you brought some, one of my favorites, Charles Mingus. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Last week, we had Duke Ellington, our guest, oh, Mildred cool. Baria, and we talked briefly about Mingus. Um, so I like that we're going from uh, Ellington to Mingus. It's a nice step. Yeah, the reason I brought this one was because, um, uh, you know, again, I don't know tons about jazz, but I love it and I listen all the time. And uh, I actually, there's a couple of years where I wrote to nothing but Charles Mingus, specifically this album, Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. So I knew that if I was coming on here to hang out with you, I had to bring something from that. Well, that's good to know. It's a wild album to write to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. I, don't, I, I guess I must have been going through some phase where I thought, like, if I just get these crazy emotions flying, you know, that's what's going what's gonna to do it. You know, not bad. Um, it's an interesting album, 63, very much a concept album, uh, a bit of a, um, I mean, he's doing things that hadn't been done yet, and... Uh, four pieces or really three pieces plus another piece that's its own pieces of like four um track a track b track c and mode d and we're gonna listen to track a solo dancer so there's a lot of sense of of a kind of staging of of bodies and music and musicians almost like a opera or a uh, some kind of theater piece Right, yeah, yeah, and I think you might have just mentioned this, but did, did he write originally write this also for like a, a weird avant garde ballet or something? Maybe that's right? what maybe that's what I'm getting. Yeah, 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 I think so. Cool. Well, let me try to get this off my computer. So if it doesn't work, you have to come up with something. No problem, smart and Woody. No problem. Plenty of that over here. <laughs> All right, Charles Mingus, you're listening to Jazz in a Summer's Day. I'm your host, Sebastian Matthews, on WPVM LP 103.7 Asheville. My guest today is Chris Hartram, and he's talking about the talking book and reading some of his own work. And we thought maybe we could uh, segue a little bit into some of one of the projects that you guys are doing. Could you tell me about it, and we'll see if I can get it to play? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, yeah, so as we said before, you know, we record um, audiobooks at the studio here in Asheville. Um, a recent one we did that was really cool, it was by uh, Mungi Ngomane. Um, Mungi's she's the, uh, the granddaughter of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And uh, this book was done through Penguin Random House UK. And Penguin Random House UK actually hired the talking book to, to produce it for them. And... Uh, her mother, Naomi Tutu, who now lives here in Asheville, uh, she actually narrated the whole thing, though the author also came to the studio to hang out. And um, 
Yeah, they're pretty fantastic uh, people. And uh, Dave, actually, the studio director, Dave Burr, he got to spend a lot of time with them. But Everyday Ubuntu is it's an ancient Southern African philosophy um, teaching us about community and connectedness. And uh, the book's kind of filled with all these different stories about um, this whole idea of like, I'm only here because you're here and we're all connected. And so it's kind of like a toolkit for, uh, for, for, I don't know how useful that can be nowadays, you know, the, the state of everything. And I think it could be really useful, yeah, honestly. I think so too. That sounds great. So this is where in the... This is actually the beginning to kind of give a little rundown of, of the... So this is kind of the introduction, okay. this, this little clip. Okay, let me see if I can actually get it going. Sure. Yeah, and uh, now me too, too. Introduction. I am only because you are. When we want to give high praise to someone, we say, You, unobuntu. Hey, so-and-so has Ubuntu. Then you are generous. You are hospitable. You are friendly and caring and compassionate. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, no future without forgiveness. Ubuntu is a way of life from which we can all learn. And it's one of my favorite words. In fact, my feelings about Ubuntu run so deeply that I've had it tattooed on the inside of my right wrist. For me, it's a small word, but it encapsulates a huge idea. Originating from a Southern African philosophy, it encompasses all our aspirations about how to live life well together. We feel it when we connect with other people and share a sense of humanity, when we listen deeply and experience an emotional bond, when we treat ourselves and other people with the dignity they deserve. It exists when people unite for a common good, and in today's chaotic and often confusing world, its values are more important than ever, because it says that if we join together, we can overcome our differences and our problems. Whoever we are, wherever we live, whatever our culture, Ubuntu can help us coexist in harmony and peace. I was raised in a community that taught me Ubuntu as one of my earliest lessons. My grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, explained the essence of Ubuntu as my humanity is caught up, is inextricably bound up in yours. In my family, we were brought up to understand that a person who has Ubuntu is one whose life is worth emulating. The bedrock of the philosophy is respect for yourself and for others. So if you are able to see other people, even strangers, as fully human, you will never be able to treat them as disposable or without worth. Life in today's complex societies is full of trials and tribulations, and there are self-help books aplenty attempting to guide us through it. We are told to meditate and reflect to look inside ourselves for answers, as that is the only place we will find them. 
the notion of self-care is a whole movement in itself. There is certainly a time and a place for self-examination. However, Ubuntu teaches us to look also outside ourselves to find answers. It's about seeing the bigger picture, the other side of the story. Ubuntu is about reaching out to our fellow men and women through whom we might just find the comfort, contentment and sense of belonging we crave. Ubuntu tells us that individuals are nothing without other human beings. It encompasses everyone, regardless of race, creed or colour. It embraces our differences and celebrates them. The concept of Ubuntu is found in almost all African Bantu languages. It shares its roots with the word Bantu, meaning people, and almost always denotes the importance of community and connection. The idea of Ubuntu is best represented in both Kosa and Zulu by the proverb Umtu Gumtu Gabantu, meaning a person is a person through other persons. It is a proverb which exists in all the African languages of South Africa. The word Ubuntu, or closely related words, are found in many other African countries and cultures. In Rwanda and Burundi, it means human generosity. In parts of Kenya, Utu is a concept which means that every action should be for the benefit of the community. In Malawi, it's umuntu, an idea that on your own you are no better than a wild animal, but two or more people make a community. The sense that I am only because you are runs throughout. My grandfather coined the term Rainbow Nation for South Africa after the country's first democratic elections in 1994, to symbolize the unity of its cultures after the collapse of apartheid. In this book, you will find 14 lessons built on Ubuntu, which is the same number of chapters as there are in the Rainbow Nation's constitution. Ubuntu is the founding principle of my grandfather's life work, and as a patron of the Tutu Foundation UK myself, I too aspire to live by its teachings in my everyday life. By introducing this philosophy to you, I hope it enhances your life experience as much as it has enhanced mine. I hope it encourages you to reach out to the people around you, both friends and strangers, who make you who you are. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Cool stuff, right? Yeah, very nice. Um, I realized, listening to it, that I've heard that word before, and in a strange, not so strange, but a little tangential context, uh, the basketball coach, Doc Rivers, when he coached the Celtics, when he had Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and... Uh, I'm forgetting who else, but a great team. He started the season and taught them that word huh. and brought them and said, we are going to play the season in this spirit. 
Right. And we were going to win in this spirit. But it doesn't matter if we go all the way. We're going to play in Ubuntu. Yeah, that makes sense. The the team connectedness, like this whole, there's no, that classic, like there's no I in team, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. How did this book uh, project come about for you guys? Um, so, yeah, you know, it used to be in the old days that, uh, you know, I would really hustle to try to get authors or publishers to let us record some of their books. But, you know, as uh, as things go, you know, nowadays most people come to us. We're, we're really lucky, uh, you know, really blessed that we've had that uh, that kind of reputation, I guess, build for us because of everybody helping out. Um, but, yeah, so Penguin Random House UK just hit us up and said, you know, Desmond Tutu's daughter, Naomi Tutu, who's the mother of uh, Mungi, the author, lives near you. Um, the author really wants her mother, uh, Naomi, to narrate the book. And you heard her voice. Her voice is pretty powerful. Um, yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, so she just came over to the studio and it took, uh, I think it took probably Dave, the studio director and engineer, and her probably about a week, I think to record the whole book. Of course, then, you know, we got to edit it and master it and prove it and everything and get it set up for distribution. But yeah, about a week in the studio, maybe four days, four or five days. Yeah. Was, and was it a good experience, do you think? Did you feel, I mean, did it feel? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know. It can, be, it can be rigorous and kind it, of it can exhausting. Be, yeah, and you know, you know it can be exhausting because oh, yeah. you, you recorded your book with us. Yeah, I mean. The first couple of go rounds didn't work and then it really was amazing to find it come alive and um, to understand, oh, this is how this is, done or this is how it's not done yeah i always tell you probably remember this i always tell authors like you know every author wants to narrate their own book you know because audiobooks are you know a big part of publishing and but at the same time you gotta you know you have to be excited to do a lot of hard work you know but uh but it's it's rewarding right would you say hugely so cool i learned a lot about my own work doing it great to hear that and I, i think we had a little bit of a faulty connection there but hopefully it came through yeah i think so it's something to do with the file type but uh but yeah hopefully people heard that and uh get that book and come check us out yeah awesome well you're listening to my guest chris hartram talking about the talking book and uh we are going to play some more mingus and i'm hopefully going to get that piece that we wanted to start with black saint and the sinner lady it's it's elusive it's an elusive track track a but i think it's going to work this time So listen to me. It's about a kid like you who believed. He was born believing, but as he grew, everything around him, beginning with his parents and sisters and teachers, everybody seemed to say that what he believed wasn't so. Sure, they said that they believed and they prayed and cried to God and Jesus Christ Almighty, but that was a few moments out of a couple of hours in church each week. So somehow he became two personalities, one as sincere as the other, and then three, because he could stand off and watch the other two. The reason was that he suspected maybe the people who didn't believe might be right, that there was nothing to believe in. But if he accepted this and put down the beautiful, honest, good things, he'd lose out on all that he could have gained if he'd, ever, if he'd never lost his belief in believing. That was uh, Mingus in Beneath the Underdog, that incredible autobiography, talking about his growing up. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know you had so many jazz books. I'm going to have to raid that, borrow some stuff sometime. I, I inherited a, a whole library of them through my father 
and have gathered some myself. And uh, I think I'm going to be pulling them out for this show as we go along. So um, thank you. I love that tune. Um, and I hadn't heard that album in a long time. And we'll end the show. We'll end our, our section of the show with uh, some of the last uh, track. Cool. The trio. Um, I was hoping you were going to bring your little boy in, Woody. I would have loved to. Would have been a little crazy. A little crazy. Uh, you know, he's around a lot of microphones at our place, but uh, he's not too good with them yet, so not a good idea. Maybe in, maybe in a couple of years he'll stop by and be a guest. Um, what, you know, we've talked about this a lot. You're trying to do a nonprofit. You were doing some graduate work. You're a parent. Um, how's it been juggling that, and and how do you feel... I mean, people often, you know, for me, being a parent, I have one boy, he's a young man now, uh, has deepened and complicated and um, really augmented my my creative life. And it's changed a lot, especially when he was young. How do you feel about that? I don't feel it's been a negative. Uh, it's just been, um, you know, like I said, a deepening in a way. How about for you? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I um, I was talking to an author named L. Nash not too long ago, uh, author of a book called Animals Eat Each Other, fantastic author, and she's a mother. And um, I told her that I could probably um, eventually make a, a podcast about trying to write while being a parent of younger children, because uh, it's just such a, um, a deep well uh, to excavate. And, you know, I have a lot of opinions on the subject, but I, I, in short, I know we don't have a lot of time, I could say uh, one thing that I've noticed is that all the years I lived uh, kind of as a bachelor, not a father, you know, I would try to put time aside for the work, but because, you know, directionless and, and, and a lack of, of focus, the children, the babies, this five-year-old, this two-year-old, Max and Woody, they, you know, because it's so hard and because time is so precious, I actually get a heck of a lot more done now being a father because when I have 30 minutes, I milk every you single second out of that 30 minutes yeah. where I used to be like, I got three hours. I'm going to go over here, do a little of this, a little of this, click Facebook, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know that struggle. Pop another beer. Pop another beer, pop five more beers. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I think that um, in a weird way, having less time has made me uh, do a lot more work. Um, so that was a silver lining, I think. Yeah, it was for me too. You know, you have to, you know, the my friends and I, two friends, uh, Curtis and Ryan, we wrote morning lines to each other. He was in Wisconsin and then Vermont, and uh, Ryan was, and Curtis was in Texas, and we just email each other, you know. And he, they had other situations going on, not kids, but time was it was hard to make the time, and so ten minutes in the morning to each other over a year, right, was really an incredible boon in a way. So. Yeah, 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 that's awesome. I, I think Ben Laurie, uh, a writer named Ben Laurie who writes short stories, um, he wrote a book called Tales of Falling and Flying uh, a year or two ago. But uh, he told me that he started getting more done when he used like the Pomodoro technique where you turn a timer on for 20 minutes, uh, write your guts out, take a break, then do another 20 minutes, right? And then that 20 minutes, you can do nothing else, right? And so I think the kids, for me, were like my own little timers right my little pomodoro techniques yeah. because i only had those little chunks and um yeah you know if you you pile up you get two 30 minute chunks a day i feel like you get seven hours seven hours of solid writing a week that's something you oh, know? it sure is yeah and it adds up um interesting pomodoro yeah pomodoro it's, i think a lot of 
I, I've been told a lot of software engineers would use it to like get hyper focused for that 20 minutes. But ever since I started like taking on some of those funny little habits or trying to, uh, I actually get more done now. Mm-hmm. It's again, not everyone's the same, I'm sure, but that, that structure. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I've found, and it's with kids too, having kids, um, reading, taking walks, um, there's a way to be active in your creative life in the mundane or what seems to be the mundane. Sure. Um, taking little snapshots if you've got a camera or just imaginary snapshots, um, running things through your head. You mm-hmm. know, you don't need to necessarily be writing all the time, but you've got to be ready for those 20-minute blocks or hour right. blocks so that when you sit down to write, you can draw from a dream. We are talking about this last show or, you know, a conversation you just had. Right or an encounter you just had. Suddenly, if you have access to that material, you can draw draw from it. That's good advice, ladies and gentlemen. If you just heard that, from there we go. Horse's mouth. Now take that. Free. I'm going to take that with me. Free, free. The first free. one's free. Yeah, yeah. Then you know you got to come back. <laughs> uh, you've been doing. Um, you and Dave have been doing a podcast as part of the Talking Book. Can you? We have a few a few more minutes. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like? I was on that briefly. It was a yeah. fun time. Actually, you were on that twice now. Really? Yeah, well, the first time... When was I the second time? Well, the first time you were on it, because you and I did the same thing reversed. Oh, yeah, and we did the, the and then American we did an, Crow stuff. We did an excerpt from your work, American Crow, which is fantastic, and, and that one was... Uh, sometimes I'll have an author on, and I'll um, just have a conversation like this about the work, and then play an excerpt, and then sometimes the podcast is simply a quick me introducing a piece of work, a reading, uh, you know, a reading like you would go to at a coffee shop, but it's you know, a podcast. Uh, so we do both kinds and yeah, we, Dave and I've been making that now for, oh, you know, almost probably a year, probably three years total. I think now, uh, first author was Scott McClanahan, the author of the Sarah book. You've been on it. Nicole Brown's been on it. Quite a few people have been on it, but we just do it every once in a while when we can, it's kind of supplementary to a talking book. Cause if we can't, we can't make somebody's entire audio book. I'm trying to do everything I can to just get people to find out about books that sometimes are hard to find out about. So even just an excerpt, sometimes 400 people hear it. It's better, better than nothing, I hope, you know, but, um, and you guys are on the web. What's, how do we get there? Yeah. If you want to find out more, go to the talkingbook.org. You can follow us on, uh, Instagram, talking.book. Uh, uh, you can follow us on Twitter, talking underscore books. Just type in the Talking Book Asheville. You can find us. Hit us up if you want to hang out, record something. Awesome. Hey, Chris, uh, we're going to end with a little more Mingus from the Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, but thanks for coming on. Yeah, sure. It's fun. This is the second uh, episode of Jazz and Summer's Day, and I'm really glad to, to start with you and, uh, and, and uh, Mildred. Um, hope to have you back. Yeah. Definitely. I'll come back anytime. Thanks for letting me read. Thanks for letting me talk about talking book. And it's always good to see you. You too, man.